Good afternoon and uh, good morning uh, to everyone. Uh, the, this is Jean-Luc Saman uh, uh, for this uh, new book talk of uh, the uh, Middle East Institute. Uh, we have the great pleasure for the next uh, one hour uh, to uh, to be uh, with uh, Cinzia Bianco, who is joining us uh, live uh, uh, from Italy, I presume, right? Uh, so uh, the way we will proceed, I will say a few words on uh, uh, the new book of Cinzia. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll start with a discussion on this book and uh, uh, we'll leave also time for the, for the Q&A for discussion with uh, the participants. If you'd like already to uh, uh, ask a question, uh, please use the chat box and uh, you can send a message to NEI events uh, with your question or comment uh, and then I'll we'll, uh, uh, transfer them, I will uh, tell them to uh, Dr. Bianco. Uh, before we get into the, the substance of the book itself that we'll be discussing here, let me say a few words on Dr. Bianco. She's a visiting fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations, uh, where she's working on political, security, and economic developments in the Arabian Peninsula and the Gulf region uh, relations with Europe as well. Additionally, she's a senior analyst at Gulf States Analytics, and previously she was a research fellow for the European Commission's project on EU-GCC relations between 2013 and 2014, she holds a master's degree in Middle East and Mediterranean studies from King's College and a PhD in Middle East politics from the University of Exeter in the United Kingdom, where she worked on threat perceptions in the country of the Gulf Cooperation Council, which will be the core of the discussion today, because that's the topic of her new book, the titled Gulf Monarchies After the Arab Springs, Threats and Security, which was published earlier this year by Manchester University Press. Just a few words on the book itself, and uh, uh, Dr. Bianco will also um, cover that uh, in the discussion. This is a book uh, that has a, a, a regional ambition that looks at the evolution of six countries, the six countries of the Gulf Cooperation Council, so Saudi Arabia, Oman, Bahrain, Qatar, Kuwait, and the United Arab Emirates. And in the decade that followed uh, the so-called Arab Spring. So Dr. Bianco uh, tells us not just about the evolution of, uh, of foreign relations and internal, uh, re internal politics, but she actually uh, provides us with uh, a way to frame uh, these policies, looking more specifically at how those Gulf states think, perceive, and act on their threats and the perceptions of those threats. We'll be discussing probably the nuances between perceptions and reality of threats. But for anyone that is interested uh, in particular today uh, in not just the Gulf countries, but I would say arguably the Middle East, uh, this is a good reminder, a good uh, uh, a good way to understand how we ended up uh, in this situation today. Uh, so the the first question, Cinzia, that I had for you, uh, uh, and this is, I always like when I read a book and I have the uh, opportunity to ask the author, is to start with, uh, uh, let's say, a personal dimension, which is, uh, how did you start working on uh, this topic, particularly the, uh, the Gulf States, uh, after the Arab Spring, I I suppose this this topic came to you after the events, but I, I'd be interested to hear about uh, the origins of the project itself. So uh, let me turn to you uh, for the first uh, uh, question. So first of all, good morning, everyone, and good afternoon, and thank you so much for joining this chat. Um, and but especially thank you to uh, Dr. Saman Jean-Lou for inviting me uh, and for and to MEI at the National University of Singapore for hosting me today. Um, and so the first question. So first of all, uh, excellent uh, overview of the book. I almost feel we can log out now, <laughs> Jean-Lou, <laughs> but. Um, I think the first question is actually quite crucial um, to understand 
the the purpose of this book um, because when I started writing this uh, it was uh, around when I started researching this topic it was 2016 so um, enough time had passed uh, after the Arab Spring and already I could see that there was a lot of interest in the academic community about um, the Gulf growing interest and also growing interest on security questions related to the Arabian Peninsula um, but what I really felt was that there was a lot of um, there was a lot of interest, but uh, the approach was quite vague. And so there was either a buy in into the rhetoric of um, the different Gulf governments uh, in which, by which uh, everything was securitized and everything was presented as a threat and even to, you know, an existential threat. Um, and there was a lack of nuances. Um, and so I thought to myself, is there an academic instrument, a tool, um, an analytical framework that can help um, interested researchers and scholars to better nuance and describe um, the security perceptions of the Gulf governments? And also, can this analytical framework help researchers go beyond uh, the rhetoric coming from the government and sort of go deeper down uh, to the source of the priority threat uh, as perceived by the governments themselves. So, so it was kind of a, it was a narrow space to navigate because I still wanted to keep the focus on the state as the object of security um, and stability, therefore. But also I wanted to go beyond um, the political pre presentation of security perceptions and what constituted a, a threat. And to be fair um, to the other research that was already around in 2016, it wasn't um, it wasn't because of lack of trying that there was a lack of nuances, but just because it was objectively a time where everything did feel a little bit like a threat, and, and you know the, the the peninsula felt a bit encircled by different dangers. Yeah, and before we we uh, discuss more specifically uh, the the types of. Um threats and uh, the, the, the risk, the, the, the priorities that those states or the, the let's say the, the decision makers of those states uh, were prioritizing at the time. Um, I had a, a question again on the, uh, the, the, the way you, uh, you conducted your research uh, because, and for those who uh, uh, have not yet read it, read it, uh, uh, what strikes me in the book is how much you rely on interviews you uh, conducted in the in the region and in the each of those countries. Um, all the interviews are uh, kept anonymous for uh, obvious reasons that uh, relate to the sensitivity. But while I was reading it, I was struck because I was thinking uh, this is a region which is uh, arguably one of the most difficult to access these days. Uh, so how was it, how difficult was it for you uh, to conduct uh, the research, not uh, just from your computer at home, but actually on site in the region? How uh, was it? Yes, I mean, this is uh, another, you know, I think, very uh, important uh, point to, to raise. So the first challenge was actually to try and strike a balance because, um, you know, what kind of sources do you want to um, do you want to have? Do you want to rely on the most? And the first choice I made uh, was I want to rely on either people from these countries or people who have uh, are living in these countries and so have a very close up experience of, um, you know, what kind of uh, um, perceptions are there? Uh, what is the rhetoric in public and in private um, about, you know, the sense of insecurity or the potential sources of instability? So. Of course, you know, I relied a lot on other experts and academics via their literature and, uh, you know, a lot of secondary uh, sourcing through books and, and academic uh, articles. But for the interviews themselves, I really wanted to try and, and penetrate uh, from within uh, the thinking in these countries. And so 
then the second challenge was how do you do you strike a balance uh you can't really rely only on one kind of source kind of source that is closest to the government and to decision making but you need to obviously involve them because um they also you know they have a privileged point of view um so i try i spent a lot of time drafting the list i tried to include opposition figures as much as possible uh but also sort of external observers people who live in these countries but uh, have an external point of view somehow. And um, the answer to how did I sort of put it together and how did I bring it across the finish line is with a lot of time. I It took me a lot of time. I spent a lot of time in these different countries. I took every opportunity to uh, participate in any kind of conference, to be fair. I also took uh, the opportunity to to participate in conferences that had nothing to do with my topic, just to be in the countries and to meet with the people and to build these relationships um, and to build this trust uh, slowly, slowly. Um, and I have to say that, you know, I think most of the people who are in this call are aware that uh, the local culture is actually quite welcoming. You do, you do have to... Um, uh, sort of, you do have to build trust and confidence, but once once you have gone after the first barrier, um, it, it's a very welcoming culture. So uh, there, there is actually, uh, it's actually quite easy to build social networks after the first uh, more, more difficult phases. It is a welcoming culture, but uh, we will now discuss some topics which I'm sure uh, may have... Uh, brought some uncomfortable situations in terms of the discussions. The And as you said, the, the book looks at uh, the threats or let's say the narrative of threats uh, from each of those countries. There's one expression that you use uh, quite often, or at least in the, the first chapters that uh, discuss uh, the, the framework and then in the conclusion, one concept that is intermestic uh, a threat. I found it intriguing and uh, I wanted you just to tell us about what uh, is meant with that concept and how you wanted to use that in the, co the context of the Gulf. Why is it relevant uh, in the context of uh, those countries? Yeah, uh, so that's the when I say I felt that we had uh, inadequate instruments to analyze security and threat perceptions. I did refer also to the fact that most commonly uh, we categorize as scholars threat into internal or external. Um, and while this is helpful, I felt it was a bit simplistic applied to the Gulf region because, you know, the area literature has established um, for a long time that borders are quite porous in the Gulf region. And so, um, you know, movements, uh, ideologies, groups, they span across borders, um, they move, uh, they sort of intermingle and then they separate again. And then there's a lot of overlap um, which goes beyond their political framework. So I'm not really referring to the Gulf Cooperation Council as a political institution. I'm more referring to the fact that these countries show not just um, a common history or a common language, but really a common uh, sociocultural context. And so that has enabled um, you know, different uh, things and, and ideas to move around and spread around quite, quite easily. Um, and even if you just look at uh, speech analysis, for example, and just you know, stay at the more arguably superficial level of looking at uh, the political discourse and the rhetoric, you'll see that even the leaders often describe threats uh, in terms of issues that uh, originate elsewhere in the region, um, but then have a very significant impact domestically. And that's what intermestic really means. It's an international um, issue uh, that has most often originated somewhere else. Uh, you know, if you look at, for example, the Islamic Revolution originated in Iran, but especially at in, in you know different times, um, the late uh, 1980s uh, and then uh, the mid 1990s, and definitely after uh, 2011. Uh, and you look at how these uh, 
uh, in, uh, Islamic Revolution external has been perceived in Bahrain, it's been perceived as a domestic problem because it has had domestic repercussions. Um, the link between these two dimensions, domestic and international, is, is I think quite too close to be dividing the, to be categorizing an issue like Iran just as an external threat. You have to consider the, the domestic di dimension as well, but it's not just a domestic or internal issue. So how can you sort of capture that? Uh, and, and that's why I use the, this word intermestic, which is actually, to be fair, not mine. Um, it has been already used by uh, other, other scholars. Uh, and, you know, even in other questions, for example, environmental security by Professor Victor Cha, um, and, and also uh, in the area literature by Christian Ulrichsen uh, to, again, describe uh, this kind of blurred borders between external and internal issues. Thank you. And so, as you said, the the, the book covers uh, some of the elements that uh, shape uh, both domestic or let's say intermestic uh, security environment of those countries. One thing uh, which is, again, very uh, fascinating is uh, how the book tells us about internal politics. Uh, we tend to look at the Gulf as this block uh, and most of it being driven by external threats uh, from Iran. That's, uh, I would say, uh, what we get from the media. Uh, but actually, in the book, you come back to the first years of the Arab Spring. And what strikes me, and I almost forgot, that uh, all of those countries, the six countries, faced some elements of resistance around the time of the Arab Spring. So could you uh, could you come back to that and tell us how each uh, of those countries, or if you see some that uh, struggled more than others when it came to uh, those uh, social discontent and sometimes, in especially in the case of Bahrain, we could say uprising, how did those countries uh, uh, react, and the governments in particular react to those uh, to this discontent? And if I can add another question, which is more like for today's discussion, how much of those events that took place almost a decade ago still shape, influence the governments in the region? So. Um... What happened, you know, that was the first finding that, you know, we tend to, we, we sort of know it, but then we, when we look at the details, we actually know it. Uh, the first finding was that the six uh, countries had six completely different experiences during the Arab Spring. As you correctly point out, all of them had to deal with some form of discontent, but it was absolutely on a spectrum. You know, on the worst end, there was the challenge, uh, the, the the threat actually, the the political and existential threat to uh, the government in Bahrain. On the opposite spectrum, there was um, a mild challenge. Uh, to uh, sort of not really the government, but actually the decision-making and policy choices of Qatar. But still there was something, uh, something was going on in Qatar as well. Um, and on this spectrum, um, you know, we had a clear political threat, which was against the government in Bahrain. Uh, then we had a sort of uh, a serious uh, uh, risk, which was against the government in, in Saudi Arabia, uh, in my opinion, and then uh, a sort of risk, but which wasn't uh, clearly political. So it couldn't really morph into an existential threat against Kuwait and then Oman. Um, and I would, I would put UAE and Qatar at the last one uh, the one before last and then the last one in terms of the severity of the danger posed. However, here we we rise, uh, sort of we go to an inter interesting point, which is that the governments did not react um, always in perfect uh, accordance with how severe was the danger, whether it was a, a risk, so less severe, or it was a threat or an existential threat, so more severe. But the reactions were not based on the actual potential of the danger to be a risk or a threat. They were based on uh, their sec the security priorities and perceptions of these governments. 
um, which were informed by a number of factors. So that's sort of the work that I do in the theoretical framework as well, is to try and point out at the theoretical level how many and what kind of factors informed those perceptions and then use them to explain the policies and, and reaction um, and point out, you know, specifically in, in every country, um, what has driven these policies and responses. Because arguably the reaction that we saw in the United Arab Emirates, for example, was much more vigorous than the one we saw in Kuwait or in Oman. But the level of the of the threat, as I mentioned before, I wouldn't even categorize it as a threat, but rather as a risk, because it wasn't existential for the stability of the of the regime. Um, but it activated one of those deeper concerns and deeper um, worries that I try to unearth and sort of. Uh, bring out in the book, which is that in the specific Emirati case, uh, the discontent, though quite limited, both in numbers and in methods and in length and in, and, and, in and duration, was linked to um, the Muslim Brotherhood. And the perception that the Muslim Brotherhood as an intermestic threat was uh, outside the full grasp of the, of the regime. Um, and so somehow could not be controlled entirely. Uh, and, and the fact that you know, the, the leadership had a particular concern about um, Islamism, which we have seen then play out in the following years, arguably till today, um, really informed quite a strong crackdown, which then leads me to the second part of your question. Um, in the UAE case, for example, that crackdown was so strong that I would argue after 2014, the issue really faded away um, in, a, in a, you know, almost to, to uh, oblivion. Um, in other situations, we still see today some concern um, and some impact and reverberations of the, the 2011 movements. We still see a lot of stagnation and uh, tensions in Kuwait between the leadership and the parliament. Uh, we still see a lot of concern in the new Omani leadership about the socioeconomic um, causes of the, the uh, um, 2011 movement. Um, in Saudi Arabia, we see we have seen a mixture of a coercion and co-optation, but still um, we see that there are periodically these new smaller crackdowns because there is still a concern in the leadership that things could could blob out. Um, and in Bahrain, we you know if you look at the political uh, discourse, this issue has not gone away. Uh, it's, it's still very much present in the thinking and um, also informing the policies of the government. Just to, to continue on the, the issue of the Muslim Brotherhood that you mentioned, uh, and, uh, and you point out the fact that it was and it is still a, a big topic for the UAE, uh, I remember hearing uh, one Western diplomat saying the UAE doesn't have a foreign policy. It has a Muslim Brotherhood policy. Um, how much of that, I mean, first, I mean, just to make sure that everyone understands uh, how the, the, the elite in Abu Dhabi is thinking about it. What, what is exactly uh, the, the Emirati belief on the Muslim Brotherhood? And do you see a lot of differences uh, in uh, in other neighboring countries. That that will lead me to another question on the blockade of Qatar. But for the moment, uh, just to uh, to compare the different views uh, on uh, the Muslim Brotherhood in uh, in those countries, and in the end, why? If you had to uh, give like a short answer, why was it seen as this existential threat uh, by Abu Dhabi? So, yes, um, there was, you know, even between Saudi Arabia and the UAE, uh, there are differences to, to how they see the Muslim Brotherhood. Although they acted together uh, for, for a few years and they both had a, an assertive and repressive approach, there are some differences. Um, let's start with the UAE. Um, so 
it was very clear already in 2011 that the real problem that the leadership had vis-a-vis -vis the protest movement was that this protest movement in the UAE had two components. The liberals, who lost interest quite quickly, I, I would have to say, um, and uh, the Islamists. And the Islamists um, had more significant, um, deeper demands, and um, they were, you know... Um, they were certainly more uh, intensely engaged in the movement and in the protest movement. However, they did not, in my opinion, and, and also, you know, I, I do quote um, uh, Dr. Courtney Freer, who is a, an absolute expert on this topic, um, in that they, they couldn't, they were not able to, uh, you know, um, upturn or, or or overthrow uh, the regime or the government. They absolutely were not because of their numbers, because they lacked uh, the instruments. Uh, they were absolutely not a, an existential threat. But um, the reaction was a broad crackdown, a mass imprisonment. Um, you know, some of the leaders of the local Muslim Brotherhood are still in prison today. Um, and, you know, a, a really deep, and complete surveillance and a political campaign, both at home in the region and internationally, to highlight the fact that this movement had revolutionary purposes. Basically, they were anti-status quo and they wanted to overturn the political order, not just in the UAE, but the entire region. And so they posed an ideological threat, a political threat, an economic threat, because they were ideologically opposed to the economic model of state capitalism that prevails in the UAE and in other Gulf governments. They were a societal threat because they were deeply opposed to um, policies of liberalization of society that, as we know, have also made the fortune of the UAE in terms of their reputation abroad, in terms of attracting a lot of foreign talent um, you know, being seen as the safe haven for global, a globalized community. So they post all of these different kind of, of threats um, in the description of, of the, the government. Um, and they were seen as the one actual vigorous movement regionally that could challenge uh, the, the order. They could start, you know, from Egypt and Tunisia, where the governments had been overthrown in 2011, and then like a domino effect could basically um, run over the, the entire uh, region. So from the point of view of the Emirati leadership, there was this regional um, element, there was then a domestic element. It was a, a huge, a huge deal. And But I think, and that's the conclusion of my UAE chapter, that one of the reasons why uh, it feels like it was such a deep concern uh, in the UAE is also because the Islamists in UAE were and are uh, concentrated in some specific Northern Emirates, and they had been able to bring on board members of the ruling families in these specific Northern Emirates. So they threatened, um, they sort of activated the, the, the security perception of fragmentation within the UAE. And the UAE is a very ambitious country with a very ambitious leadership, but is also quite a small country. So the threat of fragmentation is actually the, in my opinion, the security priority that could really destroy the ambitions of, of the country and of the leadership. And so that perception that they were trying, that the, the Muslim Brotherhood was trying to infiltrate the country and then was trying to break it apart from within by focusing on some of these um, emirates uh, and trying to turn them against Abu Dhabi, which is the ruling emirate, which is the seat of the government, I think was what really activated um, the most severe security concerns. And so this, this situation is, incomparable to any other country you know in bahrain the muslim brotherhood as you know trends tends to be um on the side of the government and against the shia minority which is the source of the most severe uh, political threat against the government 
in Kuwait, it has aligned. Um, in Kuwait, you have two kinds of Muslim Brotherhood. The one which is mainstream, which again has aligned most often with the government, and the one which is the tribal Islamists, which is anti-establishment and has posed a political risk and continues to do so. Um, but is also offset by the mainstream Muslim Brotherhood. And in Oman, it briefly represented a threat, but uh, there was a severe crackdown in 2005, and it's actually never been able to reorganize as a movement. And in Saudi, in, in Saudi Arabia, um, they uh, sort of have a complicated relationship with the government uh, who deploys co-optation and coercion against them, after Mohammed bin Salman rose to power, we mostly saw co-optation against the Saudi, Saudi Muslim Brotherhood, um, but also that pragmatic instinct to use them in some cases in other regional countries against, um, against other actors. And finally, in Qatar, they were never seen as a threat. They were actually always seen as an opportunity because Qatar hosts a number of individuals or used to host a number of individuals um, and uh, and uh, uh, networks linked to the Muslim Brotherhood in very different countries. And these networks, these links were used by the Qatari regime after 2011 to try and shape the political future of different regional countries from Egypt to Tunisia and, and beyond. This is a perfect transition to my next question, uh, which is uh, the, the blockade of Qatar. Uh, so, and for those of us who may not remember, uh, in 2017, uh, three of the of uh, the Gulf neighbors of Qatar decided uh, to close their airspace, maritime space uh, to Qatar. In the book, you uh, come back to this event. Uh, and what is very interesting is, that what we understand through your analysis is that the countries such as Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Bahrain, that closed their diplomatic relations and closed their borders with Qatar had different motivations. Uh, could you come back for us here on the causes of this blockade uh, and also maybe on the consequences, uh, because this blockade ended uh, now almost actually three years ago. But do you feel like we turned that chapter, it's gone? Or do you think that we are still uh, maybe not so far uh, from uh, that crisis? Um, so what caused it? Um, so in the book, I have an analysis of the so-called Riyadh agreements and all of the um, the lists that were issued um, to just to sort of uh, uh, indicate all of the movements and the media and um, TV networks, individuals who were seen as branded as terrorists by the so-called blockading countries. Uh, and so basically these, you know, an analysis of these lists clearly points out that um, the, at their roots, um, the problem of Saudi Arabia and the UAE and Bahrain were with Qatari relations to the Muslim Brotherhood and to Iran, especially to the first one. Um, and so, like we were, you know, mentioning before, in between 2011 and 2014, for sure, but even uh, after, to a lesser extent, Qatar was actively involved in supporting Islamist networks in different regional countries. Um, at the same time as the UAE and also Saudi Arabia were actively involved in pushing back against Islamist groups and networks in the same countries. So. Basically, these countries were on opposite fronts in almost all of the most significant and relevant countries in the region um, and also abroad, uh, because, you know, with the media networks that Qatar supported, um, they were also trying to build international support for um, an Islamist turn of the political order in the region. Um, they were using, you know, their own networks. Um, of individuals and links to groups, but also financial support, other forms of log logistical support, in the Libyan case, even a military uh, support. 
So um, it was, it got to a point to which, you know, um, the leadership in the UAE and Saudi Arabia decided that the best way to pressure Qatar into cutting off um, these relations was um, to actually extend a full political boycott and economic embargo of Qatar. They closed down all borders, air, sea, and land, um, and they created all sorts. I mean, they forced Qatar to invest uh, dozens of billions uh, in the country to survive this economic embargo. Um, and basically, they had to reroute these resources from supporting Islamist networks uh, regionally to their own needs. Um, and then the other issue, uh, you know, more broadly speaking, was that Qatar did have a very pragmatic relationship to, to Iran and also had um, uh, very intense contacts to a number of Iranian proxies in the region, from Hezbollah in Lebanon to also taking, you know, sort of developing contacts to um, Shia opposition in Bahrain without the full support of the other Gulf countries in this venture. So there was, um, you know, at, at, it was very, very clear that Qatar was on opposite fronts politically than the other Gulf countries. And they were, they wanted to do their own thing and they wanted to um, pursue uh, their autonomous policy um, course. Uh, and so they couldn't sort of be uh, talked into changing their policies. Um, and at some point, um, the, the other governments uh, sort of tried to coerce Qatar into doing that. And I would say, you know, um, a few years later now, um, after the Al-Ula reconciliation that we saw in 2020-2021, this process of reconciliation with Qatar that has now sort of moved that, those relations to being extremely hostile to the point of really the Qatari government being afraid of a, a military invasion by the UAE and Saudi Arabia uh, around 2017 with, for example, you know, you, if, if you look at the Qatari chapter, um, I point out that actually the real security priority and existential threat as perceived in Doha was actually a military takeover by uh, neighboring countries with the US either standing back and doing nothing or actually, you know, voicing some support for these actions. Um, so we've gone from that to um, quite constructive and close relations, especially between Saudi Arabia and Qatar, but also, you know, an attempt um, by the UAE and even Bahrain to try and rebuild some of these relations. And I would argue that the, the scorecard for the blockade is mixed because on one end, Qatar still maintains some relations to um, sort of anti-status quo uh, groups, um, like, for example, Hamas, who is obviously close, uh, who is obviously an Islamist group. But on other fronts, Qatar has cut back significantly its support uh, for the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, for Al-Nahda in Tunisia. Um, it has really taken a step back from those relations. It has cut back on financial support, energy support. Um, it has also exiled a number of key figures that belong to um, these local groups. So, uh, but but then on the other hand, um, not, not only Qatar maintains a pragmatic relationship to Iran, but now also Saudi Arabia and the UAE have the same, uh, even a, a closer relations in, in many cases. So it's a mixed um, outcome, I would say. Uh, but it's not like uh, politically or geopolitically, the blockade was not a complete failure nor a complete success. Thank you. And uh, before uh, we we uh, open the, the 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 floor to the the questions from the audience, let me actually uh, remind our participants that if you'd like to add, to ask a question, uh, you can use uh, the chat box and uh, write uh, your uh, question to MEI events. Uh, and my question uh, in the meantime uh, was a follow-up to uh, what you just uh, explained. And the book, I, I presume that the manuscript was uh, finished before or around the time of uh, the uh, the war uh, or the, the new war between uh, Israel and Hamas. With regards to Qatar's uh, 
role and Qatar's relations with uh, Hamas, uh, taking into consideration what you just told us about the blockade, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on uh, could could Qatar's relations with Hamas actually uh, bring back uh, some of the uh, the tensions that we saw between uh, Doha and uh, its neighbors? Because a lot of the, the elements that uh, drove uh, the decision back in 2017 for the blockade, as you just described, related to uh, Qatar's relations with that type of actors, Islamist actors. So do you see the potential for new tensions or because of the uh, uh, latest steps towards new confidence and the reconciliation, you're more, uh, let's say, optimist that uh, this time around the Gulf states uh, will prevent uh, a new crisis? So um, I think this was a great test case for uh, sort of my central hypothesis, which is that when uh, Gulf governments do not see a clear domestic dimension of a threat or a, of an issue, um, they tend to deprioritize it and they tend to treat it more as a risk and to have a more pragmatic outlook or, uh, towards that issue rather than a more um, securitized lens. And this is the case, I would argue, with Hamas um, because... Um, because of what happened over the past 10 years, there is much less of a, a conception of Islamists as a domestic um, threat or risk in any of the Gulf countries, even in the UAE. Um, so I would say that arguably they look at these uh, relationships now with more of a geopolitical pragmatic lens and thinking, you know, these channels can be useful if we're trying to get out of this crisis and if we're trying to find a, a solution um, to move beyond that. So that's my impression. I don't, unless there is a clear domestic episode, um, you know, a, a demonstration or even an attack by operatives that can be related to Hamas inside uh, the Gulf monarchies, I don't think that this will be considered as, as a problem that could reactivate um, intra-Gulf tensions. Okay, we, we discussed so far a lot about domestic issues, domestic challenges and non-state actors. Uh, let me ask you about Iran, because that's maybe one of the most obvious uh, topic when it comes to Gulf security. And again, here, what's uh, very interesting in the book is that we can see that the view of Iran from the Gulf states, one, is not unique, is not unified. Uh, we don't have the same views uh, if we're in Muscat or if we are in Riyadh. Uh, but it also evolves over time. Um, reading your book and, for instance, the, the UAE position, I found it very interesting because the UAE position changed a lot, actually, in the last years. So how do you reflect on uh, on that? And in the end, do you feel like Iran uh, is, is really seen as a, a, a major threat or it's more like, as you would say, a risk or a challenge? How, how do you make, uh, what was your conclusion on the evolution of uh, the Gulf states' views on Iran? Again, you already said the most important thing, which is that uh, it is uh, evolving. So it's not uh, static, it's dynamic, as is the case with secu every security perception, I would argue. And it is quite different across uh, the six countries. So um, the first thing that, you know, the, the first uh, impression is that uh, it is no longer perceived as an existential threat, I would argue, in uh, any of the GCC countries, with the exception of Bahrain. Because, as we said, you know, the legacy of what happened in 2011 in Bahrain is still uh, strong and fresh, um, and, and that is very closely related to, to Iran. Um, in the other countries, uh, there is now a different perception of the Iranian capabilities, 
um, rather than, than the Iranian intent, uh, especially, you know, at the regional level. So on one hand, um, Iran is still seen, obviously, as capable to run a regional network of proxies. And these proxies have a clear destabilizing uh, effect and capabilities we've seen with the Houthis in Yemen uh, these days, but also Hezbollah in, uh, in Lebanon. So, uh, and, you know, the, the Hashd al-Shabi in Iraq. But again, there is no longer a clear domestic uh, dimension, dimension for that. Um, and it's because Iran has gone through, you know, a lot in these last 10 years. And when we started this story, it was on the rise. It was negotiate. It had a, um, a nuclear negotiations, which led to an interim deal already in 2013. Um, and then a, a full nuclear deal in 2015. And until 2018, uh, this was, you know, quite um, um, solid. It appeared to be quite solid. Uh, and of course, you know, Saudi Arabia and the UAE lobbied hard on Trump to withdraw from the deal. Then he did withdraw from the deal. And after that, you know, a number, you know, the we have seen a number of implications also for um, weakening the Iranian regime internally. The last one being the movement in 2022, but there there have been a number of protest movements over the the the, the years leading up to 2022. So uh, the Iranians being, you know, in progressively cut off from the international financial mechanisms being so re so linked to china that you know now you have a dependency of iran from china um and also china is not a partner that um that floats iran with cash that can be reinvested into geopolitical ventures abroad um so i would argue that uh, beyond the rhetoric and beyond the first impressions, Iran is seen as a weaker actor today than it was seen in, 2015, in 2011 or in 2013 or in 2015. Thank you. I have uh, a list of questions from uh, one of my colleagues, Clement Shea, who's a research fellow at the Institute, uh, and questions that uh, deal with uh, non-traditional uh, security threats. And you actually uh, covered uh, some of them uh, in the book itself. What are some of the key areas of non-traditional security that the GCC are paying attention to, according to your research? And he adds two other questions. Uh, to what extent does energy security uh, specifically play a role in GCC-Europe uh, relations? And another question, uh, still from Clemens, uh, does the war in Ukraine sharpen the importance of the GCC in energy ter terms? So let's start from the last one. Certainly the war in Ukraine uh, sharpens the importance of the GCC globally for energy security. Um, you know, it has been a very severe disruption of uh, the balance in the energy market and um, there is the need for their supply to keep prices stable, even though the U.S. has um, played a critical role. Um, so I would argue the U.S. probably is as um, critical and, and uh, fundamental as the GCC countries, but their supply um, we cannot do without for, um, in, in terms of uh, um, balance globally. Um, and that means that, and, and this is, you know, the second question is, uh, energy plays a role in every GCC country's relations to every regional and international uh, power. Um, when you have, I would argue, one um, issue that is so dominant for the economy uh, and for socioeconomic balance, then it is also fundamental for socio-political balance. And these are the two main vulnerabilities uh, that I identify in the book. So a, a, a regime to be secure uh, needs to tackle its most significant socio-political and socio-economic vulnerabilities. And both these vulnerabilities, I would argue, are related in a way or another to the export of energy 
in basically every GCC country, even in Oman, even in the UAE, which has done a marvelous wor uh, work in diversifying um, its, um, its economy and its GDP sources, but even there, it's still it's still fundamental. So, um, and the third question was, uh, which which was your first, Jean-Louis? It, it related to non-traditional security uh, yeah. uh, to the Gulf. Yes, yeah, so uh, the, you know, the, the in the framework, I uh, describe uh, different dimensions of threats, uh, political, societal, economic, uh, military. Um, but of course, then there are also other uh, sources of, of threat. This is the, the framework is just to support the analysis, but there are other tangential issues. So, for example, if you look at environmental security uh, and then you look at a country like Syria, it has been established now that severe droughts have contributed significantly to pushing people in the streets and to pushing people against the government because they had an immediate repercussion on food security. So that is the case, obviously, because climate change impacts severely all of the regional countries. So food security and environmental security are concerns also for the Gulf governments. You know, look at Qatar, the economic embargo, threatened uh, their food security because they rely, they used to rely for 80% of their needs from food they imported through Saudi Arabia. So all of these non-traditional um, security issues are absolutely definitely present in the security calculus of the Gulf governments. However, my hypothesis is that un unless these non-traditional um, threats or non-traditional dangers uh, take on a clear cut, uh, comprehensive sort of undeniable political dimension, they are not treated as security priorities. I have four questions uh, from participants and we have nine minutes left. So I'll try to make it very brief uh, and uh, uh, ask you uh, directly uh, to answer them. The first question comes from Mark Tan who's asking, how do you see the recent developments between uh, those Gulf states and China with regards to the potential of a petrol yuan? Mm -hmm. uh, so that's the first question. The second question from Amelie Zakour uh, relates to the Gaza war. And the question is, how it, does the war actually upgrade uh, relations between Iran and Saudi Arabia? as uh, both call for the first time uh, since, uh, uh, sorry, the both uh, leaders uh, called, them, uh, called each other for the first time since the Beijing agreement. And if you believe that uh, there is this type of rapprochement because of the war, you think this is sustainable. Another question, uh, and don't worry if you don't remember all of them, I have them on, uh, on my uh, desk. Uh, another question from Jamil uh, relates to Gulf monarchy's security relations uh, with the U.S. Uh, and how do you see uh, the events of the Arab Spring, but I could add the Gaza war, uh, impacting uh, the relations between the GCC and the U.S.? And finally, a question from Georgi Bustin, a former colleague at the Institute, what was Qatar's objective by bribing uh, the uh, uh, European uh, parliamentarians? Uh, so that's a very specific uh, uh, question. Uh, so uh, we have, again, uh, eight minutes. Uh, China, Iran, uh, the US and Qatar uh, in, uh, in Brussels. <laughs> So thank you for, for the questions, all very interesting, and you'll forgive me if uh, I'll try to be brief, but I'll try to uh, sort of sketch out uh, the fundamentals. It, Qatar's alleged attempt to bribe um, parliamentarians at the European Parliament, and I say alleged because um, the uh, investigation is still ongoing, um, could be in the sort of judicial research related to uh, liberalizing visas for Qataris into the Schengen area, uh, which is something that it was already actually on the agenda of the European Parliament and of the European Union. So 
uh, if that really happened, the hypothesis of the judiciary is that it happened to facilitate and accelerate that process of visa-free entry. Uh, it was obviously, if it happened, it was, in my opinion, an extremely uh, counterproductive um, measure because obviously now the European Parliament, even with the threat of the potential uh, of these having taken place, is refusing to discuss anything related to Qatar, as of course you would expect. So that was extremely counterproductive, um, especially you know if it will be proven. Um, on China, I think, which is related to uh, the question on the US and Gaza, um, I think the Gulf governments do not trust the United States any longer. And I think the, Gaza, the US policies on Gaza have deepened that distrust um, and basically, they need to diversify, they need to hedge their bets by building and deepening relations with other players, especially with, if these players are US antagonists, because they no longer want to depend on the United States or they want to lessen their dependence as much as feasible, as much as credible, as much as possible uh, from a player they no longer trust. Um, and, and that's China, that's the antagonists. And the Petro Yuan, I think, is a, is, a, is a concrete possibility because the Gulf governments need to protect their relationship to China uh, by um, creating obstacles for the US or, or preventing the US from creating obstacles to these relations. The US uses the country's dependencies on the dollar uh, for uh, in implementing sanctions against them. And ultimately, the Gulf governments are really, really concerned that the US will extend sanctions that will uh, make the energy relationship between the GCC and China much more difficult um, to hurt China. But in the process, the US would hurt the GCC. And because they don't trust the US to care about the GCC interests, they need to try and prevent that. So de-dollarization to core, I don't think is going to happen. Uh, it doesn't make sense. But cutting out pieces and percentages that you can diversify your currency reliance on um, is probably uh, considered as useful. And um, the question on Iran-Saudi relations after Gaza. So I think Saudi Arabia's priority was always to prevent becoming directly involved into the conflict by being directly hit by Iran um, or, or some of its proxies, because it wasn't really, um, for them, it was the number one priority. Um, they had invested a lot of political capital into try and uh, de-escalate that relationship, and they had no willingness to be drawn back into a confrontation or be attacked um, because of Israeli or US policies in Palestine, which they don't agree with fundamentally. So um, I do think that, um, as Amelie said, uh, that these events have brought Iran and Saudi closer together because they both think it's, it is in their interest to coordinate as closely as possible and prevent um, a, a sort of um, an, an escalation which uh, they don't see the point of. And that's why, for example, Saudi Arabia has refused to, to join any international missions on actively um, against the Houthis in, uh, in the Red Sea, even though, you know, all of Europe, all European officials keep telling me, but the Saudis have all of the interest in the world in keeping stability in the Red Sea and, and security because they rely on that trade. Yes, but not as strong. Their interest is not as strong as it is the one that they no longer want to be targeted um, by Houthi missiles and Houthi drones. And they don't see, and, and they possibly uh, have had a conversation with Iran directly uh, and an agreement with Iran directly that they don't extend support to US and Western missions in the Red Sea, and in exchange, they're not targeted. And that is much more convenient for, for them. On that note, uh, this uh, this will be the end of uh, this uh, this book talk. Uh, well, first of all, thank you very much, 
uh, Dr. Bianco, uh, for this uh, for the, the engagement and uh, answering uh, all of these questions. Some of them actually going beyond the book itself, uh, which is a good indicator uh, if you're working on the sequel uh, to the book. Uh, let me also congratulate you uh, for the publication of the book, uh, The Gold Monarchies After the Arrow Spring Threats and, and Security, which is uh, published uh, by Manchester University Press. Uh, and I highly recommend everyone uh, on uh, uh, the Zoom to uh, uh, go uh, check uh, for the book. Uh, it is uh, a, a very useful, very detailed, informed uh, over outlook uh, of the region in the past uh, 10, 15 years. Uh, the next event we'll be hosting that my colleague Clemens Shea will be hosting in two weeks from now is another book talk uh, with Professor Mehan Kamrava uh, for his latest book, Righteous Politics, Power and Resilience in Iran. So we'll uh, actually move to the other side of the Gulf. Uh, let me thank everyone uh, uh, for attending this, uh, uh, this um, uh, event and uh, thank you again uh, uh, Dr. Bianco, uh, for uh, uh, being with us uh, this afternoon and this morning for you. Thank you all. Thank you so much, everyone. Thanks.